another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, and saxophonist from Washington, D.C., Jason Marshall. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Jason Marshall with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Indeed. Thank well, you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience and we get right into it? My name is Jason Marshall. I play the saxophone. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I live in New York City. Okay. First, because I honestly do not know much about you. When did okay. you move from Washington, D.C. up here to New York? I made the move in August of 2003. Anything special made you come up here, or were you just trying your luck I, in music? So, well, um, I won't say that I was trying my luck. I will say that I'm from the community of people, you know, lots of teachers, lots of artists, lots of thinkers, you know, just generally excellent people. And if it wasn't music, it was going to be something, you know, I'm, I might have been a writer, uh, some kind of teacher, uh, you know, a painter. Um, it was always going to go like this some kind of way. And uh, I, th- my struggle was that I didn't, I didn't generally do well in school. And so it made, um, it made my trajectory somewhat less obvious to folks that I encountered in school. But for me, it's like even childhood broadly, which was great, all things considered, uh, childhood, school, all that was just formalities that I had to get through so I could get to this moment. Did you major in music? Uh, Well, so I didn't want to go to college, but uh, it was suggested to me that I try it so I went to Florida A&M in Tallahassee, Florida. And I went for two years, but I didn't have enough. I, uh, my grade, my grades were not good enough to be admitted to the music program. So I was there as a general studies major, which was basically like an expression for remedial high school courses. Did they let you in the marching band at least? No, no, I, 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 I only went on the condition that I would not go anywhere near the marching band. Because I didn't want to march. I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to play my horn, you know, and, and you know. Okay, that's fair. Be a, be a quote, jazz musician. That's what I wanted to do. So, and the marching band had nothing to do with that, as far as I was concerned. Okay. Uh, so, got out of high school, went to Florida A&M. And I tell this story because for me, it was one of the first real pivotal moments in my career. Um, And and really the one that got me to New York. I had auditioned uh, from high high school to to get into the new school for social research, uh, but I didn't get a scholarship. So I went to FAMU and I was also taking classes at Florida State. I said taking classes. I was playing in ensembles at Florida State and taking saxophone lessons over there because FAMU didn't have much of a, uh, quote, jazz program. Um, so, I, you know, I would play in the big band at F- Florida A&M and the one at State and small groups in both at both universities. And one day the director of music at... Um, or director of the jazz studies program at that time, Leon Anderson, he he knew I was kind of frustrated just being down there, not not being around, you know, the scene the way I imagined it, you know, which which was to say New York. And so he's after after um after rehearsal one day, he called me into the office. He said, Jason, close the door behind you. And he says, I hear you I hear you talking about going to New York. I said, yeah. He says, um, you ready? So I want you to leave. I don't want you. I don't want you to withdraw from school. I don't want you to tell anybody. I just want you to go. 
Was this in the middle of a semester? Probably. Okay. And I knew, well, I say I knew. The only other thing he told me was that he told me I was ready to go to New York and to leave right, as soon as possible. He also told me to order transcripts right then. And he, he told me to do that because he knew that, um, as is typical with a lot of HBCUs, when when it's known that a student is doing anything outside of the traditional matriculation process, be it transfer, sometimes even change majors, sometimes defer for a year or whatever, all your all your paperwork to include your transcripts gets gets tied up suddenly you can't access it and all that kind of stuff. So before anything changed for me, I got uh transcripts from Florida uh from Florida AM and I called my dad because uh Professor Anderson, he said, man, call whoever you got and uh, figure out a way to get to New York. Don't, but just make sure you do not tell anyone. Why do you think he said that? I'm just curious. Because I think he knew that I was determined to go and that delaying it didn't make sense anymore. Okay. And he was right. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that my parents... More than a decade later, agreed that what what was probably the best thing for me to do was to simply move to New York after high school. Okay. Um, all of that to say, I'm two degrees later, right? Uh, so clearly I did the school thing and it went how it went and that's fine. But um, so I called my dad and... Uh, he, he asked me when the semester was over, and I told him, he said, I'll be down to get you the next day. And that's what he did. He drove down from Washington, D.C. to Tallahassee, Florida, and we just quietly packed everything up. And I moved back back to D.C. for or Silver Spring, Maryland, really, the uh, first city north of the, 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 uh, the district. And uh, I worked at a music store over the summer, Worked at Washington Music Center, Chuck Levin's Washington Music Center. And uh, August of 2003, let me see, during the summer, I had reconnected with the new school. Uh, I, I guess I, I, I can't even remember if I auditioned again, but they knew who I was from my first audition. Uh, and, and that time they, had, they, they, they found some scholarship money and that's, that's what uh, that's what I did. I moved to New York uh, August twenty seventh, and it, you know, en enrolled at the the new school for social research. And um, three years later, that's where I got my master's. I mean, that's where I got my bachelor's. Uh, I continued on at uh, City University of New York Queens College. Got my master's there at the Aaron Copeland School of Music. And. Uh, Okay. I guess that was two. Th by then, it's two thousand seven, two thousand eight, something like that. So you come, oh, yeah. You you literally just come up here overnight. Yep. Your first impression of the jazz scene up here when you first got here, and this is early two thousands. What was it like? Yeah. Think? So so by then, I, I I had already made trips to New York with my dad and my grand. My granddad really was the one who's taking me up to New York, uh, to 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 take lessons with Ronnie Cuber, with Gary Smallian, to, you know. Uh, go to music stores. Eventually, my granddad got me a baritone saxophone. Uh, and by, and even then, I'm 15, 16 years old. So by, by the time I moved to New York, it was like just moving into what my community was going to be. And at the time, you know, it was, it was, it was um, vibrant, you know, clubs everywhere, jam sessions. A uh, lot of musicians. I'm told that I missed a lot, but I can't. I can't really speak to what I, I wasn't here for. I know what when I got to town, it was, it was not hard to find music and not hard to hear great musicians. And um, you know, there were record stores. You could just spend all day listening to records. Bookstores. I mean, record stores. Between your <laughs> yeah, record stores, bookstores, fruit stands. There. I mean, just like it was a very. Um, Good time to be in New York for me. Okay. So how did you, tell me how you picked up or got into the actual bands and scenes and gigs. Was it just off jam sessions? Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yep. Going to school and going to jam sessions. 
And I mean, even with school, school was music school in the early 2000s was becoming a luxury item, meaning like it was so it was getting so expensive. Like now, music school is a hundred grand a year. Yes, which is uh, in in all the ways a luxury item, right? I have a problem with that. Um, yeah. So, so I I do too. Um, but back then it was it was just expensive college. So you know, I met a few people in school. But most of them would not go on to play music, even at, at out, you know, from a, a conservatory environment. Yes. Let's go into that quickly because that's something uh, okay. I mentioned on another thing. How many of them, okay. roughly percentage wise, would you say they graduated and then never continued? How many graduated and never continued? Yeah, like like they tried it for a year and then it's like mm -hmm. 60, 70%. Yeah. Were they talented or they just. Couldn't count it, or did they just get burnt out? The ones who were talented and had the discipline to develop and had the fortitude to stay are all on the scene now. Um, the, you know, it, to me, it's, it's like basketball, you know? I mean, even in a, even in a, top-ranked college team, maybe you get three people go to the league. Maybe. Yeah. You know, I so it's it, it's never it's never going to be most of the students in a in a conservatory end up being pros. Not not on no not on a world-class level. Were there any that you expected to last that just didn't? Or was it mainly the ones you expected to make it meet it? Um, I'll say this. Everybody that's playing now, like that's that's a somebody, you know, everybody that's everybody that's on the scene and, you know, operating at a world class level was basically doing that as incoming freshmen. Ooh, okay. So I mean I, I both as a student and now as an educator, it's very rare that I see people go from kind of inconsequential to like world-class in four years of college. I would agree on that because the talent pretty much showed itself by then and it's pretty much yeah. a professor that's fine-tuning it. Yeah, and just sort of building relationships and building, you know, discipline and, and, and uh, internal fortitude to just sort of make it in the scene. I mean, no, I know we're not doing good to promote music universities right now, but do you actually feel that it is necessary for artists to do it? Because I had some other I, guests that it's came. Hmm? Okay. Go after you. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's absolutely not necessary. Some children, because we're talking about mostly children who are entering into these places. Some children just need time where... They, they have some regimen, some regularity so that they can continue to develop as human beings. And college has the potential to provide that, you know, because 17 to 21, 18 to 22, those are very kind of tender years for a human being. So college is just like a good halfway point, but it's not the only one and I, it's not even the best one for, for a lot of folks. And what would you say is better than the universities? If it were left up to me, yeah. I would teach music. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would teach music as a vocation in trade schools. Okay, that one's different. You know, that next to plumbing to and refrigeration, yeah. next to, you know, auto mechanic. I, I would, I would, um, uh, I, I would, I would teach it that way because, because it is a vocation. To me, music is not a fine art until the very, very high level has been achieved. But for the average person, it's a vocation. For the student, it's definitely a vocation. Okay, that's a different take. I never heard it that way. Because, because, because it, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, a skilled labor. It's a resource that people need. Like you have to be able to put the notes in the right place, at the right time, under every circumstance. 
apart from your inspiration and apart from how you feel, you have to be excellent at your job. That's a vocation. Okay. I'm enjoying this so far. Mm. <laughs> so before I forget, and I don't keep going down yeah. these type of all right. chains, let's talk about your latest right. album. Loved it. Okay. Literally. Thank loved you. It. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So first thing I'm going to ask is, you're yeah. a brave man to be doing a solo album with a baritone. What made you actually what's, do that? What's there to be a, what's what's there to be afraid of? It's not me. It's the general public. They just don't they think of an alto. They think of maybe a tenor. They don't even really think of the soprano from what I see when I go around polling people on the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I go. I try I, to go really I, deep into this to see I, how people I, think. Yeah, I find that people like good music. So if they hear good music, the the ingredients of the good music become less important. So if the way I make good music is with a baritone saxophone, that's my business. They just hear good music. Okay, and. I agree. I loved it from start to finish. It's one of those albums you literally had my Thank attention you. the whole time. That's, so, that makes me feel very good to hear. Dude, I'm waiting for the next one. <laughs> literally, if I need a sax player, I'm calling you up. But <laughs> I appreciate it. Appreciate it. What were the grounds behind this album? Like, what made you actually... So, yeah. so what happened was I was playing at a, at, a, at a place called Django, which is a club in the basement of the Roxy Hotel in Lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm in a, a neighborhood they call Tribeca because it's the tri tributary beneath Canal Street. That's why it's called Tribeca. Uh, I was playing with the, with the Charles Mingus big band and uh, unbeknownst to me, the producer of the record, Corey Weeds of Cellar Music was in the audience on, and he was just there on some other business. But he went to go hear the Mingus band and he heard me play. And he decided in that moment that that he was gonna record me and, and put out a, a, a record um with me. And uh he called his producer, Jeremy Pelt, who I've known and looked up to and worked with for a long time. And Jeremy called me the next morning and he said, Hey man, uh Corey Weeds would sell a music wants to record you uh, right away. He wants to, you know, he wants to put out a, a record with you. So we came out with a date and, you know, after just a little bit of deliberation on, on the band, we settled on the one that you hear. And, you know, I, those are folks that I've known and, and worked with and, and trusted and learned from um, for a long time, and and uh, I either knew them with Roy through Roy, or you know, or, or other associations, but mostly Roy. And um, and uh, we, I mean, we didn't even talk long. We didn't rehearse. Jeremy Pelt said, "Hey man, just it's gonna be a blowing date, you know." And they, he said, "You you gonna do another organ?" Because I have three three other records out, all with uh, Hammond organ. And he said he asked me if I was going to do another organ record date. I said it's time to do a piano record. So we agreed piano, bass, and drums. Uh, I got the rhythm section, and I, he said send me a list of tunes. You know, make sure you got some little arrangements for them. And we agreed on everything. You know, the only discussion we had, even in the date, was the tempo of Peggy's Blue Skylight. That was it. Okay. Corey Weeds didn't say anything to me about the music except to tell me that it sounded good. That's beautiful. You know, <laughs> he said, he said, uh, man, everything is great. Uh, so I'm going to get lunch. Any uh, dietary restrictions, you know. Uh, I had, I had, um, I had a mind to, to record Peggy's Blue Skylight kind of like medium up because we always play that song with the Mingus Man. And that's, that's where we play it. And Jeremy Pelt plays with the Mingus Band as well, too. And he knows that that's where I was headed. But he said, 
he said, there's a, there's a, there's a particular tempo that you haven't covered. And we can do it with Peggy's Blue Skylight, but it's going to be slower than, than you initially wanted it. And it was, it, it didn't feel the way I wanted it to feel because it was slower. But when I went back and listened, he was right. Okay. So I'm happy with all of it. I can't knock that. Jeremy is class. Mm -hmm. I had him on and yeah, mm -hmm. I love his stuff. So yeah, he's one too. of those people, if he said, yeah, we're doing it this way, I'm just going to shut up. And just yeah. Listen to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very few people I trust like that. <laughs> so your third track on it. Yep. I'm going to probably butcher the name. I know and people are going to laugh at me. Okay. It's Average. Arigin. You see, I'm horrible with this stuff, but yes. Oh, no, it's all right. Arigin. <laughs> yeah, Arigin. It's just Nigeria spelled backwards. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that's amazing, and that's a dumb moment of me. Nice. That's <laughs> no, all right. All right. Love that track, man. So tell me about that Thank one. Thank you. I really want to know. <laughs> that's, a, um, that's a song that I have been trying to play and learn since I was at Florida A&M. I remember the alto player, uh, uh, Marquez Adams, the late Marquez Adams, and the tenor player at the time who who now plays alto, I think mostly Mike Jones. They both played uh, really strong solos on that when I was in college and played it. I think it was Micah Benny's arrangement of it in the, in the Florida A&M Jazz Orchestra. So I just kind of fell in love with the song. And then when I got to New York, one of the first jam sessions I went to was... Uh, Wayne Escoffrey's jam session at St. Nick's Pub. And he asked me what I wanted to play. And I said, Arigin. And he called it so fast that, you know, I tried, but I folded. And mm -hmm. I promised myself that I would I would um, make good on that at some point. Is but that one of those I'm going to show you off jam session things? Because I had those happen to me before. <laughs> um, to, me, to me, jam sessions are supposed to be competitive educational environments. No, nah, some of them yeah. are just a-holes, man. They just come there, and it's like, oh, new blood. Let me just, they choose that's a song, okay. and they just whip it up as fast as you can. Yeah. But that's, to me, that's what it's for. Okay, so why you the, say the that? Objective, the, the objective of a jam session is to learn, to work out things. Because there's certain things you just can't practice in isolation. I agree, but then so you, you have, have people who purposely practice mm -hmm. one song all week just to come up there to sound good on it. That's what I would do. Oh, you suck. <laughs> Get with That's what like I would you. do. That's exactly what I would do. <laughs> okay. Because that because that times 52 weeks is 52 songs I sound good on. Okay. Times 10 years, that's 520 songs I sound good on. Okay, you know, I'm going to just submit as take the L on this one. So, and, yes, I'll and, give you that one, I, okay? This is my 20th <laughs> year in New York. <laughs> But St. Nick's Pub is another one of those spots mm -hmm. that closed down. Yep. We're losing at least one a year at this rate. <laughs> okay. What do you think about the state of jam sessions still in the city? Do you still think they're going to be going? Because I see them coming less I, and less. Yeah. They're, 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 well, so venues are struggling. It's not necessarily jam sessions per se that have issues existing. People will congregate wherever they can congregate, and they're going to play music. Fair. Real estate in New York is becoming more and more volatile. Okay, I give you that. Saint Nick's, Saint, yeah, Saint Nick's pub burnt down. Yeah, but I thought they would have built it up again. It was a it was a residential uh, property. Yeah. What I'm saying is, the 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 state of things in New York, people people uh, people just build a. A, a high rise in that in that space, and just make more money per square foot. They have, I mean, that far, last last I checked, St. Nick's or where, where St. Nick's used to be is still is still a vacant lot. That I'm not sure of, and if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, didn't it close before it burned down? It did close okay. before it burned down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I'm saying what burnt down was was the 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 brownstone in the basement of which was St. Nick's Pub. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I mourn the loss of that place 
still to this day. Um, okay, yeah. states a status in of big bands in the city. What do you think of those? Because I think there also being less shows being performed. You're in two of them currently, right? Or are you still in just uh, one? Well, I, I, I'm a member of the Roy Hargrove Big Band that works every month at the Jazz Gallery. And I'm a member of the Birdland Big Band that works every Friday at Birdland. And uh, I play on occasion with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, which works every Monday night at the uh, the Village Vanguard. And um, I used to be a member of the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, which still plays every Sunday at Birdland. And uh, I'm a member of the Mingus Big Band, which until recently played every Wednesday at the Midnight Theater. So, you know, I'm not inclined to view it as big bands are not happening in New York. And how would somebody actually want to get into those big bands? The kids that come out that, of college and university. Yeah. So whether you coming out of college and university or you just new on the scene, um, the way to do that is um, really jam sessions and making yourself available for different, you know, recordings and performances and rehearsals and, making yourself known. I mean, it's easier to make yourself known than it has ever been. And why do you say that? Just, we, I mean, we have social media, which is effectively free advertising. Whether you should do it or not, it's, it's available. Um, and, you know, I mean, that that's how, that's how I, uh, that's how I got on the scene. Just going to jam sessions, make sure people heard me, making sure when I spoke to pe people, if they they asked me about, you know, if I could read music, if I could play changes, if I could play in Latin bands or whatever, the answer was always yes. Okay. One other question. I'm going to go back yeah. to your album for a second. So Sure, sure. And since you brought up social media, I'm just curious on your take yeah. on it. The streaming platforms, are you a fan of them or are you not? I'm a fan of the technology. I'm not a fan of the of the profit model. Okay. Yeah, I mean, streaming yeah. okay, as a technology fair. is is fine. It's yeah, it's it's fine. It's it's it's. I'm I'm a fan of anything that lowers the barrier to access. I'm not a fan of anything that exploits artists. Yeah, that I understand. And streaming platforms, yeah, streaming platforms have an exploitative profit model. Yeah. But it's it's not the technology's fault that people uh, that that people kind of come up with exploitative models. Okay. That I would agree with you on. I think it made especially jazz music a lot more accessible and a lot more popular because Okay. You're not when you were in a record store and you had a budget, <laughs> a lot of people would choose the pop song over the jazz song because the prices were roughly the same. My opinion. I don't even sure. think jazz was selling as much as it's being streamed now, but I could be wrong on that. It might be it gets streamed more, but it, it generates less money for the I'm, people making yeah. it. Everyone loses money yeah. on streaming. <laughs> so and and I find that the real the real issue with streaming platforms I have is not so much for 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 consumers it's for for students 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 trying to learn music off streaming platforms is like people trying to drink by standing in the rain. Explain. So, in order to ex to experience educational development, you need focus. You need you need focus in how you consume something. And an album of five songs, six songs, eight songs, ten songs is very focused by comparison to a streaming platform, which is somebody's playlist of hundreds of songs, which is like 
you know, the, 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 the last time I used this analogy, I said, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, if you were thirsty while you were playing outside, you found a water hose or a fountain and you opened it and water came out and shot directly into your mouth. Right. We didn't we didn't pray for rain when we got thirsty. We found a hose. We found a fountain. So now the kids are getting rained down on with songs, not even albums. It's just like a a, yeah. a, a torrential downpour of songs, of playlists. But that's not how you learn anything. But I think that's just more for the casual fan or someone looking to discover mm -hmm. new people. My, my point is when you when you consume, when you learn music one album at a time, you learn it all faster because it's much less available in the moment. Okay. I never saw it that way. So I'm going to give you okay. that one. No. <laughs> I, I think, I think act like general access is one thing. I think for an, from an educational standpoint. Okay. No, it's no. just less available. Yeah. Like I said, it's I less available. I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just, I saw yeah. it more on the you fact that I, I could go on and say, well, now it used to be Tuesdays. Now it's Friday. It's digital mm -hmm. release yeah. day. When everyone releases their stuff, it yep. tends to be on Friday. So I could literally okay. go onto a playlist and let's say I'm looking for mm -hmm. vocalists, new releases. I get every yep. vocalist and I get their top one. So then after the top one, I could go pull up their album and listen to the whole thing. And that's if you want to go deep. You could even go deeper than I like this artist. Or I like you know, I like Jason Marshall. Uh, let me check out all of his mm -hmm. other stuff, who he played with, mm -hmm. all of his past albums, yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's cool from a general music appreciation standpoint. Mm -hmm. But if I tell a student, I want you to go and get Leo Parker back-to-back -back baritone track four is Leo leaps in take two. I want you to transcribe. The tenor solo, which is the second chorus after the melody. That's not on Spotify. A lot of stuff's not on Spotify, title, Amazon. That's all Apple. that's an, that's another point I was getting ready to make. Yes. So so it's Spotify organizes things in a way that is um inorganic. It's convenient for non-musicians, but it's inorganic for people in the music industry. I, I say in the industry, in the vocation of music. And so you don't you don't know, like for instance, you don't know how to put a set together if you never heard an album. Continue. You got me. I mean it, like you don't know you don't know how to create an a the arc like a narrative arc through 60 minutes, 75 minutes, 90 minutes to take people on a journey. Okay, that was To easy. create an immersive experience for them. Okay. But, okay, so two things on that. How, how would you yeah, fix that, okay. first of all? You would make it like a jazz-only streaming platform? No, I just tell kids to go buy records. Okay. I mean, you're already playing an analog instrument. So get an analog music player. Okay, I give you that. Not what I would have suggested or thought, but I, I like that. <laughs> I was just more on the fact that a student doesn't have the funds a lot of times, and the youth, when they're really getting into it, because middle school, high school years, I would say, is when they really are curious. And that's when you grab a lot of them. Yeah. They don't yeah. have the funds. Yeah to go out there and buy an album. You're relying on somebody to give you the money. Yeah, so you're, you're right. But I think you are, I think we're, we're layering disparate circumstances onto a particular subject. Your, your position on it, I agree with what I've also seen is that number one, the average music student now comes from significant, <laughs> substantial means. Okay. So most of them all have money. Number okay, one. That's fair. Now, yeah. now, yeah, keep going. I'm number sorry. one. Um, 
Number two, you're presupposing that someone who doesn't have money has a smartphone. I think most of the world has smartphones right now. Like how it used to be 20 years ago, the poorest of the poor had televisions. No? Mm -mm. In, uh, well, I, in first what world I'm countries. Is, in first world countries. You don't think so? Uh huh. Okay. Mm. So, so most of the world does not constitute first world, number one. I mean, I have issues. I've had I have issues with the classification first world and third world and developing. And I have issues with the, the categories, but but um, I'm saying I think part of the reason while it with while it does create marginally more access, I I still think that for learning music, it it violates the process, and when I say violate, I mean it makes it harder to learn music off of your phone and a streaming platform. It makes it easier to consume what music is on there, but particularly in jazz, most of it is not on there. And then when it's on there, it's not organized in the the complete artistic expression, which is to say the album. Like the way the, way the songs are ordered to, to create the, the sort of the, the, the narrative arc. You just you subject to someone's opinion of what songs they like in their order. Yes, uh, that like I said, I'm not going to argue with you on that part. I'm just more on the whole thing that to get the drama more popular, yeah, to move it forward, yeah, you have to capture yeah. the people at a certain age group. I agree. Okay, and then I'm also saying that the people yeah, who, like you said, the people who major in it tend to be the upper middle class and above. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying a lot of the okay. talent pool and the people who actually moved it forward didn't come from mm -hmm. those groups. Yeah, that's true. I'm not saying they aren't that's true. people who aren't from the upper tier of society that are not killing it music-wise. Yeah. I know I hear you. I hear you. Okay. I hear you. Um and and I mean and that has has other consequences with it too. Um but just in terms of access, like I'm for anything that 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 improves access. Okay. You know, I'm for anything that reaches listeners earlier and earlier. Like I'm whatever that is, if it's I mean, I you know, again, I have issues with smartphones in the hands of kids anyway. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. But I'm just saying like. There's layers to this. But I also all. don't like when my nieces and nephews come over and they want to play Frisbee with my vinyls. So in that case... I would rather them... Yeah, but just give them a Frisbee. That's what I'm saying. I've had them mess up the phone than the vinyls. <laughs> Some of those are first prints. No, I, 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 I hear that. I hear that. But I, I would rather them... I would rather play a record player outside while they play with a Frisbee with a real Frisbee. Okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay, so how would you actually, if you have any ideas, I'm just, because we're right here. How would you get yep. the youth more into the music? I would, I would make it um, more a part of, you know, if they're on social media, I would, you know, like, like we had it in TV shows. We had it in the theme song. We had it in... Yeah. You know, every so often there was a saxophone player on the Cosby Show, or Different World, or the Muppets, or Sesame Street, or Mr. Rogers. Like, put it back in front of them to normalize it. They don't really watch TV. They no, no, no. But they do, they do <laughs> consume stuff. Like whatever they whatever they consume, put it in that. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay, I give you that one too. <laughs> I just, like I said, I don't even really watch TV. So I, I can't even say anything on that part. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. And I just wish to know some things about Roy since you knew him. Yeah. How was he really behind the doors? Was it as they say he was? I don't know what they say about him. Was he laid back? Was he chill? He had his whole thing about jazz versus hip hop and how he doesn't see them as anything different. They're not different. It's it's a continuum. Like okay. black people have been making music as long as it's been black people. 
and you know officially starting around 1917 black people were playing music in the in in uh the united states you know descendants of american slavery playing music that was referred to as jazz and um through a long sequence of events, you know, people started using record players as instruments when the schools began to deindustrialize and people lost access to acoustic instruments. They started using record players as instruments. You know, and because like you call them vinyls, they were called discs. And so people operating discs were called disc jockeys. Right. And so a disc jockey was truncated to DJ. And then some, you know, the, the MC, the master of ceremonies, who was an, originally also the DJ, the disc jockey, would have a party. The first one that that sort of we refer to was a, was a Jamaican name. Um, I think his name was Clive Campbell. They call him DJ Cool Herc. He's living in New York. Okay. And and uh, that was the beginning of the congealing, you know, like that codified style that became known as MCing, and then the culture, which included graffiti, breakdancing, MCing, and scratching, like a way that people talk about, you know, using the turntables as instruments. All that became the culture called hip hop. Okay, but I mean, it's all—it's a continuum. They're not—they're not—they're not different unless you imagine that they both sprang out of thin air, and that's not true. All right. And how was your experience playing with Roy? Anything stand out still up to this day? All of it stands out, because uh, um, Roy was 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 an example of one. You know, he had something so special in his gift uh, with music that um, it just it just raised the level of everything around it. You know, and it made it made music. It, it, playing with him made it obvious how how much of an essential resource music is. Because people who don't understand jazz or the trumpet or harmony or anything. They just needed to hear Roy play music. You know, so um, I remember the first call I got from him was to go play with RH Factor at the Hollywood Bowl. And he just said, okay, get the record. I'll see you there. And I didn't even know what record he was talking about. Um, so I borrowed the I borrowed whatever the latest record was from my roommate at the time. And I transcribed the whole thing on the on the uh, on the plane there, and then then I got there and he said, "Well, we not, we don't read music on stage." So that, that got complicated. Also, I don't know if you ever played the Hollywood Bowl or seen it. The stage rotates. Yes, that I didn't know either. I didn't know anything. So that was. Tripping you out? That was the first time I mean, on the I, stage actually rotated. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm there and it's, you know, Bill Cosby there and Jamie Foxx and Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Bunnies and, you know, just the the whole, the the sort of sensory overload of that whole environment. And uh, Femi Kuti was there with his whole entourage and Wayne Shorter newly transitioned and Herbie Hancock and Brian Blade and Dave Holland, they were there. Uh, I think Kurt Whalum was there. It was just, it was, it was a lot. I met Kamasi Washington that day. He was playing with Gerald Wilson. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Do you think there were more opportunities for up and coming artists back then, even 20 years ago versus now? I think there are different opportunities now. I think there are, there are more opportunities to become famous 
but there were more opportunities to get better back then. What do you think today's jazz music is missing? What do I think it's missing? Yes. More often than not, it's missing the Black American experience. Explain what you mean, please. What I mean is that um, because it's it's been sort of guarded up in schoolhouses, Black Americans never went to college in a majority. And so often a lot of our culture that we would otherwise have had, have had access to through family or through public school is now is now kind of walled off from us in colleges. And we're we're primarily an agrarian culture, mostly farmers and, you know, skilled laborers. Because that, you know, the, the, the transition out of slavery into sharecropping, uh, into industrialized labor, I mean, we're still kind of at the tail end of that transition. So we're not that far removed from what I would call our crucible or the, the defining moment that distinguishes our group from, you know, in the diaspora. Um, as a consequence, the the people you see playing jazz right now are the people who can afford college. Just like you, I mean, and that's true with any discipline in the academy. Right now, we happen to be talking about so-called jazz, right? But that's like when you see black people who doing things that's in that you access in the academy. It's it's necessarily black people who can afford access to the academy. You mean the recording academy? No, no, no. School, the okay, academy, yeah, sure. like okay. academics. Understood. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that I find that it it often, um, that's what's missing, which is to say, the connection to the foundational elements. Because, like, my family is from the rural South, right? Like, I grew up in Washington D.C. My grandmother was born in Kinder, Louisiana, right? My dad is from Houston, Texas. My mother was born in Tallahassee, Florida, mm. like r generally rural areas. Okay. Maybe not, not obviously not Houston right now, but you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so, so often what is missing is the you know because it is the connection to the foundational elements you know i'm not saying it's not it's not possible to find it practiced on a high level but a lot of times people say well jazz and the blues are different because blues is primitive and jazz is sophisticated that's reductive and untrue yes. but the reason people are able to say that is because it can be presented separate from its american roots Okay. Interesting thing. And 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 and, and we, we generally don't control the narrative on it. So like when like for instance, if it's Haitian music, while there are to us to us I would say a lesser extent, a mixture of people kind of moving the levers of power and you know, the spread of information. The people who, who deal with Haitian music are generally Haitian. The people who deal with Jamaican music are generally Jamaican. Agreed. People who deal with, you know, all the different musics in the, in, on the African continent are generally of those communities. Right? Um, the people who control jazz are generally not African-Americans. To my point, Willard Jenkins' new book, Ain't But a Few of Us. That's the title of the book. Because there's very few black writers to talk about black music. 
Okay, I I have not read that book. That's something else that I got. It just yeah, it just came out. It just came out. Um, but you you asked me like what's missing? No, no, what's I agree. Missing? I agree. Yeah. Uh, thank you for yeah. saying that. I need to be on top yeah. of. I try to be on top of all the albums and everything. Mm-hmm. No. It's just me and my engineer over here do, trying. And to that's do cool. <laughs> and I appreciate I appreciate the work you're doing. Okay, man. I mean, I agree to some of that. Some of it I have to look up. Different okay. takes you've been giving me all day, so uh-huh. I can't knock it. But <laughs> okay, where do you think jazz would be in ten years though? Ask your question again. Where do you think jazz music? Or the jazz scene in general will be in 10 years. Where will it be in 10 years? Will it be bigger? Will it be smaller? Will it be mainstream? Will it be more uh, niche? Will okay. Be- yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I think it will be a stronger niche. Yeah. Like, I think it's developing. I don't know about mainstream. And I'm okay if it's not mainstream. I don't. I don't need for it to be mainstream. But I think... It will be a more for it will have a more fortified position. Okay, I would hope it would be bigger, because yeah, it might be. But I'm what I'm saying is is Miss Spartan and Miss Joy won Best New Artist. I don't want people to be like uh, who. Oh no, okay, <laughs> and that that's cool. But I I mean the Grammys is very low on the on the list of things that really factor into the music community. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I'll, I mean, all congratulations to Samara Joy and and Rob Glasper and everyone else in the R and B category and the jazz category and yeah, all praises due. I'm just saying that the Grammys are not what we live and die on as musicians. Now, the general public might use it as a way to become aware of who's who. Um. But in and of itself, you know, the 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 Grammys just doesn't hold that much water to me. Okay. I mean, it's fine, it's great. Like, I'm I'm not against them. I'm just saying, whether or not people win Grammys does not necessarily have that much to do with what music gets made year to year. You know that part. I also because the, gra- the, the, the because the Grammys just by by sort of the nature of its design will never have most of music to choose from, right? Like you win the Grammy through a campaign. And so like any other campaign, just like political campaigns will never actually be chosen from everybody. It's it's about people who can mount a campaign. So the Grammys is a select is, is a selection where the pool of people can all mount a campaign. And that's not a judgment on those people or the Grammys. That's just an observation of what it is. Okay. Every now and then, actually, recently, I've been getting some guests. I've been just kicking my ass out here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You just throwing stuff at me, and it's just like, you know what? You're right. Didn't think of it that way. You're, you get what I mean? I, I like it. I enjoy right. it. I can give cool. a whole bunch of them that came out. It's just like, bap, bap, bap. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hear you. Okay, so, sir, what is your dream project? Or what do you have next for me? I'm just curious. Or us. What do I have next? Yeah. Man, there's so... <laughs> I, I, got, I got a lot on the stove right now. Um, some of it I can talk about, some of it I can't, but... I will say uh, there's going to be uh, another acoustic album released shortly. I, and, and when I say shortly, I mean this year. There's going to be um, there's a big band recording in the works. Um, there's some other large ensemble things I'm working on. Uh, I have a suite uh, that I'm completing for bass saxophone and large ensemble. So there's that, and um, yeah, I mean, keep keep, keep an eye out because if if it's on me, between like every, every six to twelve months, something new will be available. Yeah, that you know is what I would hope all artists keep doing, especially. Well, it's hard because. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's hard to but do. I, I mean, know, for, I for for me, that there, there's increasingly uh, um, there's more more and more these days. There's an educational component to what I'm doing because it is about informing people of the culture, and it is about uh, developing students so that the students can teach themselves music. Because that's really how we learn music. You teach yourself. You know, like even if you have a private lesson every day, you still spend most of the time without your teacher. So you got you to gotta learn how to teach yourself. Yes, sir. That I agree. You on. know, so there, again, as I develop myself as an educator and as a musician, as a practitioner uh, of this one vocation, then, um, then it, it, it's, it's paramount for me to maintain a regular um, output. Okay. Well, sir, great having you. Like, really. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Happy to be here. Can you please tell everyone your website, your social media, yep, where to find yep, your music? Yep, and, yep, dang. yep, yep. <laughs> I'm on... Uh, let's see. Uh, Facebook, it's Jason Marshall Jazz. Instagram, it's Jason Marshall Jazz, all one word. So that's J A S O N M A R S H A L L J A Z Z. Um, my website is jasonmarshalljazz.com. Uh, I don't really use Twitter, but I'm on there. Don't really use TikTok, but I'm on there. So I can be reached and occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll post. But. Um, yeah, there's there's always stuff in the works. It's just that for me, I I was I was born just early enough to 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 be around what we might consider like old school artists, like people who were who were professionals in the '40s and '50s and '60s and '70s, and by my getting to be around them. I, I learned and became enamored of a certain mystery in the artistic process, in the creative process. And because of that, I'm not inclined to tell. Dog is here. Do you want attention? I'm not inclined to like to publicize my whole process. I'm inclined to to um, to present when it's time. Right, but I'm not. I'm not practicing on Instagram. Okay, now, Bec that's because whole... that that when the show's yeah, done, that, you I mean... and I will talk about that part. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, like, in the same way, the Nicholas brothers didn't practice on TV. When they went on, they performed, and it was the greatest thing that you saw in your life. When Samuel Davis Jr. went on stage. It was a transformative experience for everyone who got to see it. But he wasn't up there practicing. Not because he didn't practice. You know, Eartha Kitt wasn't on TV practicing. Everyone. <laughs> you know, nobody great was up in front of everybody practicing. Not because they didn't practice, but because that was, that was the part that remained mysterious. That was the part that you know that's how, quote how the sausage is made right like that's that's not for everybody you know even even the the um even the, the like the pardon me but even the um you know like all the workout videos that didn't start being a thing until Arnold Schwarzenegger that's when you know before then you saw photos of people in competition flexing and posing and all of that but but working out they didn't film that you know, now people do one push-up. It's on Instagram. You know, hashtag consistency is key. Come on, man. <laughs> and what ended there? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but there's a, lot, there's a lot more going on than I put on social media. Yes. I'll say <laughs> Everyone, it's Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs> Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate you. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.